Well, turn with me to Song of Solomon, chapter 3. I was asked uh, recently, how, how is it that you're preaching Song of Solomon at Christmas time? Well, first of all, it's the Word of God. We can preach anything from the Word anytime. But in my years of ministry, one of the things I've seen is that the holidays sometimes bring out the worst in families. That that's a time when the underlying uh, lack of obedience to the Lord, underlying problems and difficulties are exacerbated when you see that a little bit more pressure put on by the holidays. And it's, it's sad. The couples that I've talked to that have so many memories of destroyed Christmases and of, of holidays that were just miserable because they couldn't operate in a way that was godly, that was pleasing to the Lord. And so I would say this is very, very uh, applicable to us to see how uh, the Lord would have us to behave in our own homes. And I would also say that in the last 18 months, we can all attest to the fact that our world has changed. I mean, we knew we lived in a wicked world. Now it's wicked all caps. And so the, the one place that we have total control over how peaceful our lives are is in the confines of our home. In the confines of our marriages, our families, we have control over that because if we'll obey the Lord, according to the book of Proverbs, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. And so the world might be going crazy all around us, but in our homes we can have peace and we can have joy if we'll obey. And so tonight I want to talk about commitment. When we think of the idea of commitment in any type of relationship, now let's take it outside the realm of marriage for a minute. It may be the relationship of an employee to his company. It may be the relationship of a store to its customers. Maybe the relationship of a law enforcement officer to the community. When we think about commitment, we tend to think in terms of things like a, a conscious decision to be committed, a disciplined act of following through on promises, a resolution to prioritize the ones to whom you're committed. And those are good ideas. But that idea tends to creep into God's invented institution of marriage that when we think of the idea of commitment, what we're really talking about is especially those times when perhaps a married couple doesn't feel like being married. The married couple says things like, we don't get along that well and the love has lost its luster a long time ago, but we're committed. That it almost has a it's the final defense. It's the last straw idea. And frankly, that sort of commitment sounds more like a prisoner saying, I'm committed to serving the remainder of my time. But what I'd like to show you this evening is that the true biblical commitment in the context of a marriage, in the context of that relationship, goes far beyond just a, a conscious decision or a, a disciplined act or a resolution to prioritize your relationship. Instead, I'd like to show you that commitment is the catalyst, it's the cause, it's a determiner of that mysterious and glorious and God-honoring one flesh, one mind, one heart union that God has intended marriage to be. And so we come now to the final scene really in this longer section that began all the way at the beginning of the book. This final scene of the two main characters... King Solomon and his countryside bride, whom we've called Shulamith, more often called the Shulamite from chapter 6, verse 16. But we've said there's good evidence to give her a proper name. Solomon and Shulamith, both Hebrew root for peace. 
the commitment has been made. Solomon and Shulamith will be married. And now we get to an unusual portion of the poem, which seems very dreamlike. It seems dreamlike because verses 1 through 4 of chapter 5 recount a dream that Shulamith has. Now, how do we know that this is a dream? The evidence strongly supports this being a dream. First of all, in verse 1, Shulamith says that she's in her bed, and while in her bed, she starts this small adventure that has intrigue and mystery to it. Second, we'll see that the adventure has her all in one night, potentially traveling from southern Lebanon, her family home, to Jerusalem, and then all the way back in one night. Third, she'll speak to some night watchmen in Jerusalem about the king, and to the night watchmen she calls Solomon, him whom my soul loves. Not likely a real situation that you're going to go up to somebody who's a total stranger and say, can you tell me where him whom my soul loves is? And fourth, she asks a question to the night watchman. It goes unanswered. They just sort of fade away and she keeps walking. It's just a really odd thing. So this is undoubtedly a dream. And it's uh, not not the last one. There will be another dream in chapter five. But this is a dream that shows us how commitment The commitment she's already made, how it's the catalyst, it's the cause, it's the determiner of that mysterious and glorious and God-honoring, one flesh, one mind, one heart relationship and union that God has intended marriage to be. And so these five verses actually provide a very clean little outline for us. So we're going to glean five impacts that the commitment in the marriage, a determined commitment, has on the marital union, on that one flesh, one mind, one heart union. The first impact of commitment, commitment influences affection. Commitment influences affection. Now, since this is a dream with some drama to it, we'll just let it unfold as we go. And so we'll just go verse by verse through this. Chapter 3, verse 1, to show that commitment influences affection. On my bed by night, I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. On my bed by night, I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. She's in her bed, and so she's sleeping. She says, I sought him whom my soul loves. And that means in her dream, she fully expected him to be right there with him, right right there with her, rather, in her bed. She emphasizes it twice. I sought him. I sought him. And this could indicate maybe that it's a recurring dream as well. And now at night, even in her sleep, she's expecting to find him there. In fact, if in reality she had awakened and believed that Solomon was supposed to be there with her, what would, she, what would her seeking him be? Well, she'd go looking around the house. Maybe he just got up in the night. Some have asked if this is just Shulamith letting her affections go or, or being undisciplined in the protection of her own internal purity. Is that what it is? Is she just having a lust problem? No, she's not. Song of Solomon goes to great lengths to defend the virtue and the purity of Shulamith. We've read this several times, but chapter 4, verse 12, she is called a garden locked, a spring sealed. I'm sorry, a garden locked, a spring locked, a fountain sealed. Three times over, she is unassailable. She is innocent. She is pure. And remember last time in chapter 2, verse 17, when they became very close emotionally, she sent Solomon away to maintain their purity. Instead, what she's experiencing here is the natural developing desire that should be there as marriage approaches. 
her desire to have him next to her is importantly very based in the context and in the level of their commitment. In verse 1, in verse 2, in verse 3, in verse 4, Solomon to her is the one whom my soul loves. Literally in Hebrew, my life loves him. From the very core of her being, she loves him. And you remember last time we saw the big victory that she's just had. In the midst of Solomon contending with a world filled with women who all want him. In chapter 2, verse 16, she asserts that mutual ownership principle that they share and in particular are about to share in marriage. Chapter 2, verse 16, my beloved is mine and I am his. Translation, I win. And we are together. So now there's a total commitment. There's a complete commitment to the coming one flesh, one mind, one heart union that God designed. And because of the totality of this commitment that she's, she's completely all in, she's dreaming of him even to the point of wishing that he's with her in her bed. And, and we shouldn't construe this as a sin problem. God didn't design us to just suddenly flip on a switch on our wedding day as if we didn't have a single intimate thought about our coming marital relationship. I, I've never talked to a couple who's a week away from their wedding and said, now you make sure and don't ever think a single sexual thought about your upcoming honeymoon. And I've never had a couple say, hey, we haven't actually haven't given it a second thought whatsoever. That never happens. What happens? Well, there's obviously this growing tension. Which is why 1 Corinthians 7, the Apostle Paul says that if you're burning with lust, do what? Get married. There is this tension. So, so we wouldn't say that she's having a problem here. She's going through a normal desire. Her commitment has influenced her affection. Now you remember that when they had been separated during the winter time, she had likely returned to southern Lebanon with her family to her family home and how excited she was to hear him coming. Chapter 2, verse 8 But remember, she was withdrawn. She was hesitant. She was emotionally, chapter 2, verse 14, hidden in the clefts of the rock like a dove. She's tucked away in the safety of her family home. They had to work through the issues facing them before they could fully commit. They had to catch the little foxes that spoil the vineyards, chapter 2, verse 15. But they worked through those issues. They were united in spirit and in mutual ownership. And now, as you recall, in chapter 2, verse 17, their desire for one another is such that she shoes him away until the right time. And so, of course, she's dreaming about him. Even in her dreams, she's seeking him. Her thoughts and her affections have been shaped now by her commitment and by the fact that he's committed to her. This presents a major shift from conventional thinking about romantic love. Conventional worldly thinking says this, Commit to the one you love. But Shulamith is modeling the opposite. Love the one to whom you have committed. You see the difference? Romantic marital love, it may in fact start with a great affection and feeling, and that's wonderful. But here what we're seeing is something more noble, something more ethereal, something more heavenly, something more reflective of the love of God. What do we mean by this? Shulamith does not commit Because she loves, she loves because she is committed. See the difference? I have this dream, and nobody will make this dream come true, but I have this dream of someday being able to pair up a young couple who both love Christ and love the Word of God and are obedient and have never met one another and bring them to the altar and marry them because what will happen? Commitment engenders love. 
and they will fall in love. Nobody will make that dream come true for me, but it's an experiment I'd love to take. But this is very good news to all of you who are seeking a spouse at some point. The decision to commit influences your affection. What does that mean? It means that you can objectively say to yourself, so-and-so loves the Lord, so-and-so follows Christ, has the character qualities I believe would make a godly spouse, and you can make a decision to commit, and the affection and the closeness and the connection will grow quickly and joyfully because of this. It'll happen naturally. Now, yes, Shulamith and Solomon have certainly been expressing their love for one another, but now, particularly after the ownership and the commitment statement of chapter 2, verse 16, now her love for him is so intense that she misses him next to her, even though he's never been there. Or if I could put it this way, not being married to him feels unnatural now. It feels unnatural. In her subconscious mind that's reflected in her dreams, She feels out of place that something's missing when he's not there. So again, the godly example here is that she loves the one to whom she's committed. It's not merely that she committed to the one that she loves. First impact of commitment. Commitment influences affection. The second impact of commitment. Commitment produces oneness. Commitment produces oneness. In her dream, she has sought him in her bed. She has likely sought him in the house in her dream. This is not likely her waking up in reality because the, the events of, chapter, of verses 2 through 4 are very dream and fantasy-like. In fact, if verses 2 through 4 were portrayed in a movie, Shulamith is probably walking around in her pajamas or her nightgown since in reality she's still asleep. And now, having sought him in the bed, having sought him in the house, she leaves the house. Verse 2. I will rise now and go about the city in the streets and in the squares. I will seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. Now, either she's asleep in the family home in Lebanon, southern Lebanon, or in the temporary home during the harvest season outside of Jerusalem. In either case, she gets out of her bed and suddenly she's in Jerusalem in the middle of the night. And listen, this verse here is packed with intensity about her connection, her oneness with Solomon there are three main verbs to start I will rise now I will go about the city I will seek him and first of all this threefold repetition shows the intensity of what we might even call the sense of loss that she's experiencing she misses Solomon the second way we we see the intensity of her connection here all three of those verbs the verb form indicate repetition she repeatedly rose up she repeatedly went about the city in the streets, in the square, she repeatedly was seeking them. What does that tell us? It tells us she's maybe having this dream every night. And the third way we see this intense connection here, the verb form for these three here, for this rising up and going about and seeking him, it's saturated in what's called a wish form. It's a longing. Oh, how I wish to seek him. And there's this sense of desperation. And I put it this way. To all of you who have been married for a while, imagine the feeling of suddenly having no idea where your spouse is, even searching the entire city and not being able to find him, not being able to find her. It's a terrible feeling. And we would categorize this as much a nightmare as it is a dream. Verse 2 ends in defeat. I sought him, but found him not. This is a perfect verb. I sought him. I've done everything I know to do. But I can't find him. 
Solomon and Shulamith aren't yet married, but their souls are knit together by their commitment such that she's having nightmares about not being able to find him. The first impact of commitment, commitment influences affection. Second, commitment produces oneness. There's a third impact of commitment. Commitment generates yearning, the longing for the other. Commitment generates yearning. Well, now in her dream, Shulamith has given up her search. She's made the circuit of the entire city. And now other characters enter the dream. Chapter 3, verse 3. The watchmen found me as they went about in the city. Have you seen him whom my soul loves? In the ancient Near East, cities were attacked by neighboring cities, by neighboring nations, and so watchmen to both watch the outside and to and outside the walls and inside, those were very necessary. The dreamlike quality of this scene is very apparent here. That the watchmen don't question her. They don't ask her, what are you doing wandering around in the middle of the night? And you might recall that in our culture, a nighttime activity has been normalized by something. By what? By electricity, right? That makes nighttime activity normal. But in the ancient Near East, at nighttime, everybody did this unusual thing called sleeping. They just went to bed. And yet they don't ask her any questions. Instead, she does the questioning. And she doesn't say to these manly men, these armed guards, please tell me where to find the king or can you direct me to King Solomon? No, she says to these men of war, have you seen him whom my soul loves? As if they might answer, oh sure, we saw king him whom your soul loves wandering the streets at two o'clock in the morning just like you. But the appearance of the armed guards in her dream This is anything but warm, anything but lovely. This is a huge contrast to some of the word pictures we've already seen so far in Song of Solomon. The pictures of vineyards and orchards and sunshine and flocks and hills and singing and birds. No, instead, now the picture turns cold. It turns dark. This is the city at night with the night watchman. There's definitely a sense of coldness. There's a sense of being in a strange, unwelcoming place. In another dream she has in chapter 5, we get back to the city and the guards, and this time the guards beat her and bruise her. So this is not a friendly picture. This is a picture of being in a cold, unfriendly place where her only hope of safety, her only hope of security, her only hope of love lies in finding Solomon. This is a, a, a dramatic picture. A young woman in the middle of the night wandering the dark streets, calling out for her love, only being greeted by strange armed men And you might have noticed there's been a crescendo of panic here. First in her dream, she finds out that Solomon isn't with her in her bed. Then she seeks him in the house. He's not in the house. She goes out into the city to all the streets, all the squares. And now she runs into the representatives of the city, the guards. It's like Solomon has disappeared. This is a nightmare. She's yearning for him. Her soul is now so connected to his that the thought of his disappearance absolutely panics her, such that she's dreaming about it every night. Let me illustrate this this way. Currently, an average of 164,000 people in the world die every day, every single day. It's more than we can really fathom, and yet you sleep just fine, don't you? You aren't obsessed with thinking about it. But if one particular person was suddenly not with you, 
What does that do? It causes a yearning. It causes a longing that's beyond measure. Shulamith is in grief. She's grieving because her connection to Solomon by her commitment has caused a yearning, has caused an ache, has caused a hunger and a thirst for his presence. And that's what a marriage relationship is meant to do. You're meant to have that. I've heard it said by so many secular psychologists that the connection of marriage really shouldn't be too tight because you're not independent and you would suffer too much losing that person. No, that's the way it's supposed to be. That's why the Lord says that a married couple is one flesh. Commitment not only causes affection, not only causes oneness, it generates yearning, a, a deep, deep desire to connect and to be connected This is why we embrace. This is why we hold hands. Not just because we want to, but because we must. Going a day without holding your spouse's hand or embracing or or showing connected affection is like saying, I'll go a day without my arms. I'll go a day without part of my body. You're not whole without the other person. What a contrast to the world's imposed wicked evil selfish design of marriage and romance that says i'm my own person totally complete and totally fine without you i just condescend to share some parts of my life with you that's the world's notion no the bible says i'm incomplete without you life is not life without you i'm a shadow i'm a fraction without you that's what commitment does it generates that yearning There's a fourth impact of commitment. Commitment creates joy. It creates joy. All of a sudden, the city watchmen, the guards, they just sort of fade into the background, like in a dream. Shulamith goes from inquiring of them if they've seen her beloved without apparently even waiting for an answer to simply passing by. They just wither away as quickly as they appeared. And now she finds Solomon. And their joy is overwhelming. Verse 4, scarcely had I passed them when I found him whom my soul loves. I held him and would not let him go. Here in this verse is encapsulated and condensed her heart of commitment. I held him and I would not let him go. This is a happy ending for the separated couple. Their reunion creates such joy, such delight for her. She's had a sense of what life would be like without him and she can't stand it she can't stand it at all love has developed such that she can't live without him and this love developed at this increased exponential rate because after chapter 2 verse 16 my beloved is mine and i am his the commitment they've made the mutual ownership and oneness they share that's why the love has increased at such a level she's opened her heart she's made herself vulnerable why is that because it was the right time it was the right time. And in fact, their relationship is now right on the, on the verge of marriage. It's time to be married. In her dream, when she found Solomon, now she is suddenly transported back to her house and she's still hanging on to Solomon. Like, she loves him so much. I know this is a dream, but you're not going away anyway. And what happens now? Scarcely had I passed him when I found him whom my soul loves. I held him and would not let him go until I had brought him into my mother's house, into the chamber of her who conceived me. I think this is often wrongly taken to be a a sexual reference of her trying to take him in sexually, but we know they're not married. And 
just to be practical here, sometimes a little common sense helps us interpret the Bible. Picture yourselves as a newly married couple, for example, visiting your parents. And would any of you excitedly say, hey, let's go to my parents' bedroom? Nobody would say that. That's not the point here. That's totally missing the point. Shulamith is referencing her mother's chambers, her mother's rooms. Why? Because that's where her mother is. It's no more complex than that. And this is big. This is huge. You remember in chapter 2 when Solomon came to her house, he stayed outside and for a time she stayed inside. Then they went out together to catch the little foxes, to renew their relationship, to talk through the difficult challenges before them. But now she's bringing Solomon home to her mother. In fact, both Shulamith's and Solomon's mothers are mentioned in Song of Solomon seven times. The fathers aren't mentioned. Some have speculated that by now both their fathers are deceased. King David was in the last couple of years of his life during this time period when the story takes place, so that's a possibility. But I prefer to highlight two other themes around the mothers that are most central to the story. First of all, some have said that Song of Solomon is a purely sensual book that doesn't at all talk about marriage leading to children and to family. Nothing could be further from the truth. The frequent mention of both of their mothers reminds the reader that God's plan, his perfect plan, is for marriage to lead to the ultimate symbol of unity, a little tiny baby that looks like both of you. But secondly, about the moms, and more directly related to verse 4, the mothers are the ones most directly involved with what? The wedding. That's what the moms do. And how do we know that the couple is now ready for marriage and that this dream This is the reason that in her dream, Shulamith has brought Solomon home to her mom. Well, I don't know if you picked up on this, but every every part of Song of Solomon so far has had scenery. It's been set somewhere. What, What have the scenes been so far? After all the scenes in Song of Solomon, Shulamith with her friends expressing her love for Solomon in chapter 1. Shulamith inquiring of Solomon where she can spend time with him in the pastures. Chapter 1, verse 7. The couple spending time together out in the fields in the pastures. Chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. The couple thinking about each other while Solomon is back in his own home. Chapter 1, verse 12. The couple out in the wilderness again in chapter 1, verse 16, expressing their love for one another in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Then there, you recall, at this great banquet, That Solomon is prepared for her, potentially the engagement banquet, chapter 2, verses 3 through 7. And then they're separated for the winter. And in chapter 2, verse 8, Solomon comes to her family home and calls to her from outside. They spend the day together, renewing their relationship, talking through the hard issues facing them. She sends them away because their love has grown beyond their ability to control it. And now in her dream, her nightmare of sorts, she can't find him. And so she's so committed to him, so connected to him that in her dream, she's saddened to find that he isn't in her bed with her. And she goes to the city to look for him. And when she finds him, she brings him into her house to see her mother. Why? Because after all of these scenes, the curtain comes up on what is act two of this drama. Look at verse six. What is that coming up from the wilderness like columns of smoke perfumed with myrrh and frankincense with all the fragrant powders of a merchant? Behold, it is the litter of Solomon. Around it are 60 mighty men, some of the mighty men of Israel, all of them wearing swords and expert in war 
each with his sword at his thigh, each terror by, against terror by night. King Solomon made himself a carriage from the wood of Lebanon. He made its posts of silver, its back of gold, its seat of purple. Its interior was inlaid with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. Go out, O daughters of Zion, and look upon King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, on the day of the gladness of his heart. She's on the brink of going crazy if she doesn't have him in her bed with her because they're about to get married. Shulamith has opened her heart. She has fully committed to the point that she's in agony without Solomon. And when she finds him, she's so overjoyed that she won't let him go until she goes home to plan the wedding. And just to play it safe, she drags Solomon there with her. All these impacts of commitment. Commitment influences affection. Commitment produces oneness. Commitment generates yearning. Commitment creates joy. One more, commitment awakens desire. Commitment awakens desire. Verse 5 of chapter 3, familiar to us because we've already read it in chapter 2. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. This is a now familiar interruption. Shulamith has already given this warning to the younger girls of Jerusalem in chapter 2, verse 7, that sexual desire must be connected only with commitment. And when commitment is made, then marriage is to happen. And in this case here, there's a little bit of a play on words. Shulamith has been asleep. She's been dreaming. And now in warning your friends, she tells them not to awaken love until it pleases. Very poetic. But for Shulamith, her desire is fully awakened and she's properly and rightly allowing it. Her desire is in the confines of her determined commitment to Solomon. She's entering the stage where she's now ready to marry and in which intimate love is right, it's proper, it's God's will for this desire to be fully awakened, fully relished, fully experienced. But what got it started? My beloved is mine and I am his. A determined commitment to one another. There's so much rich application here and I'd like to spend just the remainder of our time on four applications. I'll tell you what they are in advance. There's three short ones and one long one. First application will be a short encouragement to those not yet married. The second will be a word of warning and caution to the married. And third will be a simple application to utilize commitment to rekindle love. I'll repeat all this for you. And the fourth one we'll spend a little more time on, a longer application on one aspect of commitment that is so key, so vital, and I think will be good for your marriages. Let's just go through these four together. First of all, a short encouragement to the not yet married. How could I encourage you? In our world and in the church of Jesus Christ overall, and, and, and my observation doesn't mean that I've observed everything perfectly, but it's just what I've observed, that for the first time in my lifetime, in the church of Jesus Christ, there is a, a reluctance, there is a hesitancy to get married. And I don't know what that is, what that's about, but I've observed it. There's been almost an overthinking to the point of perfectionism and, and selfishness that when, that when exactly the right person comes along, then I might consider marriage. And again, this is part of our culture's thinking that has more of a try-before-you-buy mentality that I will not commit 
until all the pieces are in place, until I know everything, until there are no mysteries left, and that I sense that we're one. But remember the pattern we just observed, that oneness comes as a result of commitment, right? That's a, that's a biblical idea. And, and yes, you should know someone well before marrying. Yes, you should take care not to marry simply because someone vaguely decent happens to be in the general geography around you. As we said a few messages ago to the young ladies, don't marry a loser. Don't marry a man who won't grow up, who won't be responsible, has been spoiled by his mommy. Don't marry a man who doesn't know how to be an adult. And as we've said to the young men, don't marry a woman who's worthless and has no worth work ethic, but would rather just be a pampered princess who goes from being spoiled by her father to being spoiled by you. But neither should you wait until some ethereal, magical moment happens. That if on Christmas Eve, the star of Bethlehem reappears as I happen to be walking by the one person out of eight billion that I really, really wanted and angels sing and she floats a little bit off the ground, just a little bit. And she says words like, I promise to serve you and to to just be your servant and your slave for all time. I promise to give you all the children you want. You will never cook a meal. You will never be with any sort of uh, pain and agony whatsoever. You will always be uh, filled with delight with me i'll always look good all the time for about 60 years it'll everything will be perfect and i'll serve you then you go i'll think about it (laughs) commitment causes love commitment causes love a number of years ago we had a precious couple in this church and they they had to leave for for family reasons but some of you know who i'm talking about and I, i love them so much because one of them married the other fully knowing that the other had some severe disabilities. And one married the other simply to be there for him and to love him and to cherish him. She just made a commitment. Second of all, a word of warning and caution to the married. Yes, there are extreme cases when the union of marriage is in jeopardy and sadly may even have to end. Cases of unrepentant adultery, showing someone to be an unbeliever, or emotional or physical abandonment. Cases of unrepentant abuse as a form of abandonment, demonstrating the abuser as an unbeliever. Scripture allows for those rare exceptions. Jesus said in Matthew 19 that these exceptions are because of the hardness of the hearts of sinners. But beyond that, in the heat of disappointment in your marriage, in the heat of disappointment in your spouse, to threaten your union, to threaten divorce, or threaten to leave as a tool of manipulation, or to try to force the other into righteous behavior that erodes your union, erodes your love, because you're saying, my commitment to you is nearing an end, and therefore my love has limits. Your one flesh and that shredding of that one flesh status can't be weaponized to coerce or manipulate your spouse into behaving the way that you want. The third application, a simple application to utilize commitment to rekindle love. How do you utilize commitment to rekindle love? There are times when spouses act like they're each other's enemy. That's just a fact. We live in a sinful world. This is why 90% of the counseling I've done in my ministry is marriage counseling. 
So what does Scripture say to do with your enemy? Romans 12, 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. In other words, you don't take vengeance. You don't try to pay back. You, you don't try to make the spouse pay. God will do that. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. 1 Peter 3, 9, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. That means verbal abuse. But on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. As our friend Richard Baxter, the 17th century Puritan pastor that we've been quoting, wrote, he said, quote, love will cause love as fire kindleth fire. I have a fourth application. This is a longer one on one aspect of commitment that's key, that's vital, and that is spiritual commitment to one another. Spiritual commitment, and if you're one of those discussing these messages at home, you can consider this part your assignment. I want to give you 10 ways to show spiritual commitment to one another. I want to just nail this down. And let me briefly introduce this concept of spiritual commitment, first of all. One of the most important outworkings of commitment is the care of each other's souls. Yes, the husband is a spiritual leader of the family, but his wife is also a sister in Christ. His helper, and this includes helping to nourish his soul. What is the goal of spiritual nourishment? It's to help each other in the knowledge of the word of God, in the worship of our true and living God, and certainly in obedience to the Lord. And so I'd like to show you 10 ways to show spiritual commitment to one another. And I hope you'll take this seriously because this is so important. This will create peace in your home. The first way to show spiritual commitment, and some of these are long. I don't want to shorten them down. I want you to get the content. First of all, take the word of God seriously yourself. Take the word of God seriously yourself. If you don't take the word seriously, how will you be motivated to encourage your spouse to do the same? You need to be reading your Bible more. I know I'm not doing it, but you really should. That falls on deaf ears. That means reading your Bibles. That means studying. It means spending time in prayer, being faithful and constantly listening to the preached word. Then from a position of humility and of setting an example, you can encourage the same in your spouse. And it doesn't make any difference, husband or wife. Set an example for the other. The second way to show spiritual commitment. Spend only the time necessary to discuss the mundane things of life. Spend only the time necessary to discuss the mundane things of life. Now, what do I mean by this? Spending only the time necessary to discuss the mundane things of life. A light bulb needs to be changed. We need to work on our budget. We've got to renew our, our car insurance. We've got to do this. We've got to do that. And those things are important. And we understand we have to deal with those things. But if they become the primary focus of your conversations, you really just have a business partner, not a spouse. And what are you running? A business? This is a relationship. This is a one flesh relationship. Instead, talk about your duties toward God. Talk about your hope of heaven. Talk about the cross of Christ. Talk about the beloved church of Christ. Talk about what you're learning in the Bible. Talk about what Sunday's sermon taught you. Do you and your families talk through what was preached every Sunday? 
you ought to. It's a great conversation. Or if I could put it this way, speak of eternal things every day. I like to encourage couples to separate those things out. Yes, you have to have your business meetings. Yes, you have to figure out your calendar and, and do all sorts of those things. But don't do that on date night. On date night, ask the other one, what's the Lord doing in your life? How can I minister to you? How can I love you? Let me tell you 15 things I adore about you right now. Don't say, and by the way, you need to pay the electric bill when we get home. Only spend the time necessary to discuss the mundane. Here's a third way to show spiritual commitment. When the other is speaking of eternal things, be careful not to extinguish that conversation. When the other is speaking of eternal things, be careful not to extinguish that conversation, to act like you're not interested. In my experience in, in the pastorate, what I've seen is that one spouse who avoids those eternal conversations often indicates that a soft spot may be getting hit that needs to be hit. That if you're spending zero time in the Word of God, if your spouse wants to tell you about her time in the Word and you're not receptive, then there's a problem there. And yes, that might mean saying, you know, you brought up how 1 Samuel chapter 1 just ministered to you today, and I have to confess to you, I haven't been in the Word in weeks. Yes, you might be saying, you're really convicting my own heart right now because my walk with the Lord is not what it ought to be. Instead of pushing back, instead of avoiding, cherish that and be thankful to the Lord that you have a brother or a sister in Christ who has held you accountable to walk with God in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Here's a fourth way to show spiritual commitment. Watch each other's lives and strengthen the other's spiritual weaknesses. Watch each other's lives and strengthen the other's spiritual weaknesses. Instead of being constantly critical of weaknesses, help the other one. Encourage the other one. Be the one who bolsters spiritual weakness. This is what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5.14. Help the weak. Help the weak. If one is not disciplined in prayer, and you are, then ask, can we pray together for a moment? If one is not disciplined to desire to be in church faithfully, then be the one to gently say, we need to be in the church every single Sunday if one is prone to a sharp tongue, then gently help and encourage instead of just being critical. Be a source of encouragement to be more like Christ. Have the courage, have the fortitude, have the spiritual strength, have the self-control. Instead of responding, do not respond with reviling with reviling. Instead of responding that way, simply take a breath and say, I'm just wondering if the way you're speaking to me is pleasing to Christ. To watch each other's lives and strengthen the other's spiritual weaknesses. Isn't that one of the reasons you're married? That your spouse has strengths that you don't have. Here's a fifth way to show spiritual commitment. Keep your love close and intimate so that you're open to counsel and correction. I know that's long, but it's so important. Keep your love close and, commit and intimate so that you're open to counsel and correction. Keep your love close and intimate so that you're open to counsel and correction. This is one of the vital connections between intimacy and spiritual partnership. It becomes very, very difficult to speak into the life of the other when they've not experienced your love to a great degree. On the other hand, it becomes easier to speak gently and lovingly into each other's lives toward greater Christ-likeness when the bond of closeness is maintained and kept solid. 
There's a sixth way to show spiritual commitment. Be teachable versus proud and argumentative. Be teachable versus proud and argumentative. Proverbs 8.33 says, Hear instruction and be wise and do not neglect it. It is very often a misnomer that says that the biblical admonition, wives submit to your husbands, means that husbands don't need to listen to what their sister in Christ says to them about their own walk with Christ. If there's been love and respect and closeness and tenderness and joy and intimacy, then there will be no question that the, the motive of the heart is to be a help and to assist the other toward Christ's likeness. And what a gift we have if we'll use it. The gift of someone who observes your life at closer range than anybody else and who can provide input and help. Yes, even if it hurts at first, but out of a motive of love and care. Be teachable, be proud, be instructive. When was the last time your spouse was critical in some way, maybe even not in a way that was very nice, but you said, thank you for pointing that out. If that helps me be more like Christ, then I'm really grateful for that. And number seven, sort of as an add-on to number six, but don't try to instruct or correct the other continually. But don't try to instruct or correct the other continually. This becomes wearisome. It becomes feeling like argumentativeness and even a disdain. This crosses over into perfectionism that, that I can't really love you until I have perfected you, until you've made it. And we've said this before, but what's the goal here? Is it, is it that by the time you're 85, you can say, well, you've finally been perfected. That's not the goal. If you're continually correcting, continually instructing, they can raise suspicions that your motive is not love. Your motive is not to help. But the motive is to make me happy, to please me, to craft my spouse into my image for me. Proverbs 10.19 says, When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. This isn't just saying that some people talk too much, although that is one application. The immediate context is in correction and reproof. Two verses earlier speaks of heeding instruction. The verse right after this speaks of the tongue of the righteous being choice silver. In other words, words are selective. They're valuable. Let me put it this way. Does your mouth shoot out pennies constantly? Or every once in a while, give a $100 bill. If you want to truly help your spouse, don't make him expect, don't make her expect that every single day is going to contain correction and critique. Instead, 1 Peter 4, 8 rules the day. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love does what? Covers a multitude of sins. And in your marriage, that where, that's where that ought to be the most. Just a little side note. When I've encountered couples in which one or both of them have a problem with continually criticizing day after day, time after time, I have in the past given them the homework that they create some object or a card. It could be anything. It could be a remote control. It doesn't matter what it is. That they have to give to the other one when they're giving a correction or help of some kind is going to be expressed. And then the one who gave it away can't do any more correcting until they get it back. What does that do? That tends to slow the pace quite a bit and you tend to be a little bit more choosy. But more seriously, consider this eternal perspective. If I had one more week on this earth with my spouse, does the thing I'm about to bring up really matter?
Does having a biting tongue and a rude demeanor really matter? Yes, because I can honestly say, do you think that in the last week of our time together, wouldn't it be pleasing to the Lord if we watched our mouths? But does a towel being left on the bathroom floor every day, does that really matter? No, you just smile and serve and be thankful you have a spouse at all who leaves a towel on the floor. Listen, a constant flow of criticism, even with legitimate concerns, it's going to send a message, ultimately, that you don't really want to live under the same roof with that person, that you don't really like who they are. In fact, Proverbs 21.9 tells the husband of a contentious wife, go live on the roof. Try to separate yourself from this as much as possible. Let me give you an eighth way to show spiritual commitment. I'm going to quote Richard Baxter for this one, advice that he gives for showing spiritual commitment. He says, quote, help each other by reading together the most convicting, cutting, life-giving books. Help each other by reading together the most convicting, cutting, life-giving books. This is amazing. This is hundreds of years ago. And he's saying, as a married couple, spend time together, reading together. He calls this, quote, making friendships with the holiest persons, meaning the authors of these these books that are teaching you how to love the Lord. It's only pride that makes a husband or a wife not want to read that which may convict or challenge. That's all it is. So help each other. Let me give you a ninth way to show spiritual commitment. Pray together often and fervently. Pray together often and fervently. This forces you into a state of spiritual sobriety and and awareness. You become more aware of the might and the presence and the majesty of God. And it also reminds you every single day that I'm not just married to a man. I'm married to my brother in Christ. I'm not just married to a woman. I'm married to my sister in Christ. And if you're going to be close to one member of the body of Christ, doesn't it make sense that your spouse should be that person? I want to give you the secret for praying together often and fervently. This is the secret. Are you ready? Start tonight and don't stop. Just start tonight. Every one of you will probably brush your teeth before you go to bed and some of you will forget to pray with your spouse. Flip it around. Forget to brush your teeth and pray with your spouse. And pray for one another. Pray for one another all throughout your day, you should be praying for others and your spouse should know that he or she is at the top of that list every day. It should be a reasonable, honest statement for you to be able to say, here are all the people I prayed for today, but you were at the top. You were in the middle. You were at the bottom. And for our 10th way to show spiritual commitment, let me quote Richard Baxter one more time. Help each other by an exemplary life. Help each other by an exemplary life. He says, quote, be what you desire your husband or wife should be. Excel in meekness and humility and charity and dutifulness and diligence and self-denial and patience. And so overall, what I'm, I'm pleading with you is, is to understand that your relationship as brother and sister in Christ will feed your relationship as husband and wife. Does that make sense? You feed the one with the other. Now, if you'll indulge me for just a moment, I've separated out the concepts of love and commitment and shown you that commitment creates love between two. The world would say the opposite. That it only can be love that creates commitment, but we would say the Bible says the opposite. Commitment creates love. But why do we separate those? Well, we're not prone to simply to decide to love and commit at the same time. 
We're not able to do that. Let me paint a picture of loving and committing simultaneously. A man sees a woman from afar. He knows all about her and she doesn't even know that he exists. And to top it all off, the woman has nothing to engender the affection of this man. She's hateful. She's unkind. She's selfish. She's cruel. She thinks only of herself. She's immoral. She's dishonest. And and if she met this man, it's certain that she would not like him in the least because he is the opposite of her in every way possible. He's loving, he's kind, he's selfless, he's compassionate, he's moral, he's honest. And in fact, in no way does she deserve his attention or his affection. And yet this man sees this woman from afar and he determines simultaneously to love her and to commit to her. Even while in reality they are moral and spiritual enemies. That sort of love is beyond amazing. And the reason it's beyond amazing is because it's not human love, it's divine love. It is divine love. Romans 5.8 says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And this is so important to understand that God doesn't love you because you trusted in Christ for your forgiveness of sin and for a new heart. You trusted in Christ for forgiveness of sin and for a new heart because God loves you. His love came first. The love of God didn't start at the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ is because of the love of God. First John four nineteen, we love because he first loved us. And what was Christ's commitment? What was his love? He committed to his father that he would die the death of a sinner and take the wrath of God in his person so that you wouldn't have to and so that you could be part of what the Bible calls the bride of Christ. I want to finish up though by taking this back to the realm of human love and marriage for a moment. If that's the heavenly divine love that God has shown to all who have placed their faith in Christ, Do you see how pleasing it is to the Lord when we reflect that level of love and commitment in our own marriages to love the other as Christ has loved you, committed, tender, serving, caring, cherishing? This is why Paul said in Ephesians 5, 28, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. He desires that we reflect that divine love. And this is why Paul says in Titus 2, 4, that wives are to love their husbands. And in verse 10, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. In other words, that they may accurately reflect the work of the gospel. In their own hearts. What a great goal for your marriage. To adorn. To beautify. The gospel of Jesus Christ. That your marriage looks like the love of God for the church. That's our goal. I hope that's your goal. And I hope that you will spiritually nourish one another. In that determined commitment. Let's pray together. Our Father we thank you for the word of God. We thank you for the clear abundantly clear admonitions and help. Lord, as we mentioned earlier, our our world is just almost insane 
men and women in power who are so wicked, so godless, so darkened in their understanding. The church of Jesus Christ going down the road of more and more persecution and and Christians not welcomed in this world, laughed at, mocked the values you have given us through Scripture, the, the heavenly law of God, mocked and devalued as pointless and worthless and in the other names that the wicked choose to call it. And yet you have given us the ability through the Holy Spirit and through the Word of God to create in our homes havens of peace, havens of joy, resting places where a husband and a wife may, through the commitment and the love that they have through that commitment, relish one another and hold hands through a life that can be difficult. And so I pray for the marriages represented in our church, Lord, that there would be a determination to renew that love, to be spiritually nourishing one another, that as brother and sister in Christ, they would grow as husband and wife. I pray for those yet to be married, Lord, that you would bring them quickly to the spouse of your choice so that they too might have that that peaceful home, that home that is a haven in the midst of a world that is waiting for judgment. And in the meantime, Lord, I pray that a church filled with godly marriages and godly families would be a force for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that the world, as they observe our lives, would seek after Christ as they see what you have done for us. Lord, I pray that the gospel may go forth first in our homes and then outside the walls of our homes, through the church, into the world. And we pray these things for Christ's sake. Amen.